Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. There are big stories about colonialism, the ways that European countries traded with, culturally infiltrated, and conquered large chunks of the globe. And it's important to tell those stories. But amidst the world historical, there are always regular people trying to make their way. And a handful of those folks, Indians and Europeans around the turn of the 18th century, formed the intricate, beautiful novel Loot by our guest this morning, Tanya James. The New York Times called it addictively absorbing. Publishers Weekly called it a roaring tiger of a novel. And it is those things. And also a story about transnational friendship and the will to create. We'll talk about all that after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Even the best historians have to leave out nearly everything in order to make sense of what's happened, which is why historical objects can be so startling. They retain the details, the aura, the color, even the smells. They cannot be fully compressed to make the past more orderly. And it is one remarkable such object that sits at the very center of Tanya James' novel, Loot. The object is a nearly life-sized tiger, a semi-automaton, crouched over a British soldier, teeth in his neck. And I cannot wait any longer to ask Tanya where she first saw or heard of the tiger and about her relationship with it. Welcome to Forum, Tanya James. Thank you, Alexis. Okay, I need to know. Where did you see the tiger, and how did your relationship with this object really develop? 
Um, well, I came across, I was looking at automatons, and mainly they were European automatons. Um, these were mechanical devices that would, you know, imitate human acts. And um, pretty popular in Europe in the 17th and 18th centuries. And I'd never seen one, though, that was made by an, an Indian. And so this one, while not as sophisticated as these other automatons, like these other automatons, you know, might perform, like might write, you know, in a book or play a flute. This one was much more um, simplistic. But in other ways, it was really fascinating to me because it was so sort of sinister and dark and also kind of funny. And I'd never seen anything from an Indian perspective from that time kind of making fun of the British or suggesting a kind of um, violence and contempt and just... Um, you know, mockery of the British. And I, I've never seen anything like it since. And I, I don't really know why I found it so um, captivating, but it was, it became a kind of obsession for me. And I feel like sometimes I give my students this advice, which is that, you know, it's always helpful to give your obsession to a character because <laughs> it's not really about like kind of figuring out why you're obsessed, but it's just about giving your character something to to do and to kind of go after. So that's what I did, basically. And it does. I mean, this story is really about a, a, a clockmaker, a mechanical Frenchman, and the, the young boy, the teenager, Abbas, who apprentices with him. How did you start to build the characters kind of out from, from that object? Well, I actually, I initially really wanted to write a heist novel. That is set in an English country house. I don't know why I was obsessed with the English country house situation, but I thought it's going to be two people who are trying to swindle this wealthy English woman out of Tipu's Tiger, which is part of her art collection. And that is sort of the latter third or half of the novel. But I then I kept thinking, well, who would actually, you know, want this object so badly that they're willing to risk their life and their reputation for it? And so I kept thinking about the artist and, you know, that a lot of times I start with some kind of thing that's interesting to me, like Tipu's Tiger, but I I might not find the personal connection, like my own, why do I care about it? Like, why does it matter to me? And I, th I thought, you know, thinking about the artist had me thinking about, you know, ambition and, and, you know, being young and wanting everything. And so I kept tracing his journey back and back to India when he, you know, what would it mean to him to be plucked out of nowhere and made this apprentice to a French clockmaker and to be part of this thing that is so much grander than anything he thought he could ever make. And so I, I kind of came to realize that beyond being a heist novel, it's really sort of his own coming of age that's driving the, the sort of arc of the novel. Mm. Because Abbas grows up in Mysore and we need to know, I think a little more, our listeners need to know a little more about like kind of what was happening at this period of time in uh, southern India between the French, the British, like what's kind of the geopolitical setting for Abbas's life? Yeah, I, I think this is an, a really interesting moment in the history of British Empire because at this moment, um, they only controlled about 9% of land mass of the Indian subcontinent, and mainly in the north and the east. 
but they were hell-bent on getting control of the southern peninsula. And Tipu Sultan, who was then the ruler of Mysore and who commissioned this automaton, he, he and the Marathas basically were standing in his way. So they were, you know, really determined to get rid of him. Um, and once they did, they really, you know, that was sort of the beginning mm-hmm. of a new age for the British Empire, which was much more kind of nakedly, um, um, you know, greedy and and um, sort of violent and brutal in terms of its tactics. Mm. And we end up with uh, Abbas in sort of this in something something of a last stand in in some ways. Um, but Abbas is making this object, and you end up with these beautiful passages where you have to kind of think about woodworking, right? Mm-hmm. And the ways that this woodworker might see and, and understand um, the, the wood. Could you maybe read us just like a little passage from where Abbas is, is beginning to work on the tiger and with this wood? Sure. He holds the tool up to examine the handle, fine and ferruled in perfect alignment with the tang. Next, he selects a round-headed mallet fixed tight in its handle. These tools are superior to any he has used before, but, as he well knows, the tools do not make the carver. Armed, he approaches the mass of wood, and before he can be paralyzed once more, he studies the drawing and begins where he always begins, at the highest point. He knocks the mallet onto the chisel, another knock, and another, the blows firm but few. The wood begins to lose its anonymity. He learns its fragrance and grain, Straightening the chisel, he knocks toward what he imagines to be a tiger, waiting to be unleashed. Mm. That was Tanya James reading from her novel, Loot, which is a work of historical fiction set in the late 18th century and early days of the British Raj. It follows the adventures of Abbas, a teenage craftsman who James imagines might have created the incredible tiger automaton that can now be found today, a real object, in London's Victorian Albert Museum. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, if you've read the book, what are your questions for Tanya James? Have you seen Tipu's tiger? Otherwise, is there an object from history that's always fascinated you? How come? Like, what drew you in to this particular object, you know, some something that you've seen in a museum or, or online. The number is 866-733-6786. We're also curious, maybe you're a woodworker, and how do you understand uh, the way that that wood is made into real things? Uh, the number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org, or you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, or threads. We're KQED Forum. Um, China, I have to ask about your own relationship to woodworking. I mean, did you yourself have to like take up the tools and start to figure this out? Or like, how did you get the sense of what that would be like? Well, I am not a master woodworker of any kind. I, <laughs> you know, where I basically watched, um, it was during the pandemic, I was writing, re- reading, um, researching a lot and writing this book. And I found woodworking videos online and just watched and watched and watched and read you know, memoirs by woodworkers. Um, but really, that all of that kind of research, most of it is just trying to feed my own sense of confidence. And I think what makes, I think what convinces a reader and what I hope has convinced the reader here is that it's the sort of emotional infusion, like the, 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 the position of the character towards the craft. And so I, there's this line, the 
in what I just read that the tools do not make the carver. Mm -hmm. Um, it just reminds me that this morning I went to Office Depot and I'm starting a new novel and I got a nice notebook and a nice pen and <laughs> it just, it's just, I do this every time. That novel's going to write itself <laughs> practically right in there. It's going to be great. <laughs> I know. I got the perfect mechanical pencil. And so it's just this, this when you're, whenever you're starting something new, this kind of like, this sort of, you know, the tiptoe in and the, the sort of insecurity that is just mm. part of the process, I think, no matter where you are in your, you know, career. You know, you were mentioning that you were reading a lot about automatons. I mean, what do you think? I, I've brushed up against this over time, you know, history of robots, basically, in my career writing about technology. Mm. I mean, what did you end up making of that automaton landscape and why it was you know, such a thing in that period of history? I mean, I think one of the things that is still sort of um, present in our, you know, as artists, uh, you know, in our attitude toward um making AI or, or, you know, back then automatons, what was, what it's, it's the thrill, but also the fear involved. That's mm -hmm. what I think is attractive and was attractive about automatons. You know, the fact that you could be playing God by creating, I mean, there's an actual duck that was an automaton and it looked like a duck and it ate food and pooped. And it was called, you know, I'm going to, you know, sanitize the name, but the pooping duck. And um, it was really famous and scary for people, even though actually it wasn't actually digesting the food. It was just had some things lodged up its butt. Um, wow. And so I, I think there's something really that it's the attraction and the repulsion that I find really interesting about um, Tipu's Tiger, any make the making of any of these automatons that that um, are we crossing a line here? Um, are we stepping outside of some kind of sacred boundary. Um, and I think Abbas feels that as he's making it, that there's something dangerous about what he's doing. And also if we can make stuff that does the things that humans do, like what does that say about us? Right, <laughs> right. right. <laughs> like, yeah. I think certainly in the current AI craze, that seems to be part of what's going on is people just being like, wait a second, if a computer can write a sentence, does that mean writing sentences is worthless or is no longer part of what makes us uniquely human? Right. And I think about a lot this there well in the novel there's this idea of erasure and that part of the part of the desire to make something is not only the thing being made but but the artist being present in the thing in some way. I you know, just having their name on it somewhere. I, I was looking at a Turkish rug yesterday and it was this gorgeous silk rug that was took twenty five months for this one woman to make and in the corner she had stitched her initials between this pair of wings and I just thought that was so that was sort of beautiful, this human desire to be seen and I I just I was very moved by that and I feel like that theme some is somewhere in the book too. Yeah. We're talking with Tanya James, the author of the novel Loot, among others. It's a work of historical fiction set in the late 18th century in India, France, and England. We'll be back with more from her, and we'd love to hear from you. Is there an object from history that's always fascinated you? How come? Like, what drew you to it? The number is 866-733-6786, forum at kqed.org. You can find us Twitter. Instagram or threads or KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned with, for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with Tanya James, author of the celebrated novel Loot. You mentioned in the first segment about the particulars of kind of what was happening in southern India with the British uh, increasing their control over the, the whole subcontinent. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you try to get at the kind of lived complexity, the kind of day-to-day life for people who are, un, you know, in the throes of this, these, you know, major movements of history. Yeah, I mean, I think it's always a sort of struggle. Once I've done a lot of research, there's this desire to to present all of this to the reader so that they will believe that I'm an authority on this subject. And I'm really a, a, not an authority on any subject except my characters, I think, where barely, because sometimes they do things that I don't know that they're going to do. And so I think... I think, um, I, yeah, I, it's, I, I think about history, I try to think about history and pare back anything that doesn't really matter to the characters I'm following. Mm-hmm. And that that's hard because I, on the one hand, I've learned a great deal, and I, especially when I know what's going to happen. Like, I know where history will lead, and I find that very interesting. So sometimes I would do this kind of flash forward into history, but I always try to stick very closely to the things that actually impact directly would impact my characters' lives. Um, and so that was just, if I, when I stuck to that rule for the most part, it just, the novel kind of edited itself in, in a way mm. that the, the research kind of edited itself. Well, and I kind of delighted in that the United States as like a historical or political entity just is totally irrelevant <laughs> as you're yeah. saying you know it's irrelevant to the characters so it's like totally irrelevant in the book which is a refreshing thing to read i mean i don't know where i read that but i just thought it was so funny that that from the indian perspective or from a european perspective that george washington all these people were just a bunch of farmers to them mm-hmm. you know from from an, a, a different sort of perspective i I just love that everybody is kind of on an even playing field at this moment in history. Britain is not the superpower yet. And so, um, yeah, I just, and I also loved the idea that, you know, America was these, you know, early Americans were watching what was going on in India. They were, you know, disturbed and and influenced by Britain's sort of more rapacious kind of, um, you know, the, the sort of turn towards a more kind of um, mercenary um, way of ruling in India. And so I, I, you know, I learned about American, you know, colonial history as independent of Asia, you know, mm-hmm. as most people think, I, I think did in middle school. Um, but it's, it's interesting to see these connections um, now. 
Well, and it's interesting, too, because I feel like, you know, there were all these revolutions going on in Latin America, too. Mm-hmm. And we're taught like the American revolutionary story is like right. completely without any of those things, even though there's, you know, recent scholarship now that shows that there was a total interchange. There were revolutionaries from Latin America in the U.S. and people mm. were aware of what was going on. And all these all of these kind of uh, movements were aware of each other. Mm. That's fascinating. Um the other thing that seems very difficult, uh, and it also reminded me, we had the novelist Abdul Razak Gurna on mm-hmm. um, after he won Nobel Prize, and he's kind of describing the East African coast near Zanzibar and his most recent novel and the, the wars between colonial powers disrupting so many lives there, leading to so many people to die, and these, you know, England and France and Germany and Italy. Um, how do you end up dealing with sort of the the horror of the colonial project um, in in these places and the the death that a- attends to that? I mean, I think I think maybe the most horrifying thing I write in the novel is the siege of the capital city, the siege of Serangapatam, which is now Srirangapatna. Um, it was so there's so little written about it. I couldn't really find anything about what it was actually like, but I did see this one engraving of four Indian women being carried off by British soldiers and they're smirking and they're sort of smiling about it in the engraving. And I thought I don't really want to take the reader into this um I, I want to draw attention to the way this is going to be represented and the way it might have been in my mind. Like, how do I represent the horror of it without indulging in, I don't know, I, I'm trying to think about how I thought about that. I just didn't want to represent a kind of version of that scene that we've seen in movies or TV, I guess. And I wanted to give these women some dignity, some life beyond being plundered in this way. Mm. And so... I, it was actually really hard to kind of find a way to think about these women. And I think what I did, one of the things in that moment I did was um, the writing just went into their perspectives and looked at them not just in this moment, but years from now and who they are years from now. And not not in a way to give us hope and, and make this like a, not to kind of make this a um, a smoother version of reality or, or a lighter version of reality, but to kind of give these this horror complexity and dimension um, beyond just the horror itself. I don't know if I'm, if I'm making sense, but yeah, well, hard. and that, that the people's lives extend beyond the moment of horror too, right? Yeah. And that that, yeah. that happens in this book a lot. People are part of these horrible situations, but then they have to go on living after that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You mentioned um, the word plunder, which made me want to talk a little bit about the title of the book, Loot. So we kind of know it as a little bit of like a jokey word as a noun, um, but it's a really quite intense word as a as a verb in English, you know, associated largely with riots here. Can you tell us about like the etymology and how it became the title? Yeah, sure. It was, um, loot comes from uh, Sanskrit and is still in a uh, Hindi word, uh, lootna means to plunder. And I just... I have never come across a title early on when I'm writing a novel, mm. but this one, I just came across it early in research, and I just thought, oh, that's so good, because it, it, is, it suggests the kind of confluence of, of um, cultures and, and um, 
it was taken from, you know, Hindi into English at around this time. I think probably because there was they needed a word to kind of suggest that. What they were doing. Yeah, oh. the scale of thievery, right. Um, and it's so sharp, and I felt like it gave a kind of contemporary feel to the to the title, and I I also feel like it's a it is it has a political a sharp kind of tone to it, um, and so I I kind of I thought that was sort of fun, and it's just a great discovery. I didn't know that it came from Hindi. Yeah, um, one listener asked like on this very topic, you know, I was curious what the author thinks about this object, Tipu's tiger, being held in the Victorian Albert Museum. Does she think it should be repatriated back to India, or because of its French connection, is Europe uh, the right place for the object? I mean, I think that yes, I would love to see it. I mean, I would love to see it in India. I think that would be so amazing for the people who live there. I think it does at least like kind of a shared sort of um, maybe Tipu's Tiger on tour or something like that. I don't actually think that's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, so um, I think Britain so far, the British Museum, the V&A are pretty, pretty, have a pretty strong hold over their collections. I, I have think, thought more though about how artists are sort of confronting um, the sort of Co- conflicted and complicated histories of these objects. And I, I do feel like museums could do more. And there are curators out there doing this work of trying to kind of maybe showcase these objects with more contextualizing and honest um, placards. Or I think about artists like Titus Kafar. He's an African-American artist. And he, you know, he has this one painting that's amazing. It's um, called Behind the Myth of Be- Benevolence, but it's a portrait of Thomas Jefferson, but it's being pulled back. And behind that, you, should, you can see who's pulling it back is a um, an enslaved black woman. Mm. And I, I just love the idea of artists kind of drawing our attention to the distortions of history and the distortions of narrative. And so I, I while I think, you know, in, in a practical sense, I don't see Tipu's Tiger moving anytime soon, I just like the idea of being kind of playing with and thinking about, you know, confrontations with history, basically. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, you can imagine an exhibit of Tipu's Tiger within the colonial project that says, like, mm-hmm. here's all the things we took. Yes. But you can also imagine an exhibit of Tipu's Tiger, like, within a broader look at Mysorean wood carving from that mm. time, right? Like, you can imagine you know, um, working with a museum in India to bring the tools and the pieces and, you know, bring together that context of like, how could you have someone who was this good and this imaginative? Like, what was the world that created that individual and singular artist? I love that idea. Just changing the conversation um, and recontextualizing something changes how we look at perhaps even who made it, you know. I don't I didn't think about that so much when I was looking at it because it's it's, you know, as you said, it's placed next to Tipu Sultan's, you know, gun or his robe and so it's all about like it's a more ethnographic look mm-hmm. um and not looking at the artistry yeah. so much. You know, we've been talking about the colonial aspects of this and and the ways that that plays uh, in the novel. But one of the things that I found like really fascinating about it was you move into many different kind of class positions, racial and ethnic groups, as you tell the story. Like it doesn't just unfold from the perspective of a boss. You move into, you know, the noble woman's mind <laughs> um, for time. 
Um, did that feel fraught to you in any way to be kind of giving full humanity to each of the different types of people who's kind of in this book? Yeah, I mean, I think it always feels fraught to me when at the outset it seems to me I that I have nothing in common with this character. So, and that you know the 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 trap then that the the easy place to go is toward sort of tropes that I've seen. So with Lady Selwyn, who's this wealthy English woman who owns the country house and also owns Tipu's Tiger. I just thought, oh, God, I really don't want to write Maggie Smith from Downton Abbey. <laughs> Great show. But I could easily see this going in a very quippy direction. Mm. And um, I just, I, 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 and that's where, that's where she was initially. And when I was writing, she was sort of easy to mock, you know, from a mm-hmm. present day perspective. And because she has all this sort of absurd sort of orientalist you know, these ideas about collecting Orientalist art, which was not absurd at the time. So I didn't want to lean too heavily on that, like, aren't we so smart, you know, today because we can make fun of how people didn't know anything back then. You know, I didn't want to take that too much of that kind of Mm. um, position of humor. I felt like, I feel like for me, I need, if I'm going to spend time on the page with somebody, I want to, I need to kind of access their vulnerability in some way. Mm. And for me, her vulnerability that I recognize is that desire to be a writer, that she's a novelist. And I thought, you know, she could be a, she could have been a terrible novelist, but I kind of, I thought it would be more interesting if she actually She's good. Pretty yeah. good. Yeah, <laughs> she's pretty good. And, you know, not without flaws, you know, but um, that, that, that there's something kind of tragic too about her situation, which is that she is sort of in this middle place as, in terms of class, but also she can never really share what she's doing. Um, and that, I think for every artist, well, most artists, and I, I feel this way, that part of the pleasure of making is the pleasure of sharing it. Mm, yeah. Do you think that this being a historical novel, in some ways, like the distance from that, lets you inhabit those voices more more fully? Mm. I I do find it harder to write characters that are very close to me in terms of their, you know, biographical, like, you know, I I find that hard to write, you know, a writer or some, but I'm, I'm always, I'm always, I think part of the fun for me, part of the dance with writing people who are doing something very different from me is to kind of weasel my own, um, my own personal life in in there and kind of kind of you know sort of hope I can get away with sneak sneak in some things I know there's um a character in the novel who's a sailor this is another guy who had a hard time at mm. first I thought how am I going to write sailor speak I mean he's you know writing his memoir or a diary and I just again didn't want to sound hokey and I um I think one of the first things like, I yeah, love right. me. Like a pirate. Yeah. It could have gone in that direction. But um I was scared of the dark when I was little and I whenever I would go into the basement I would call my mother's name every step. And I mm. just gave him that one thing, that one fear from my own childhood, and it just gave me a way to like empathize and sort of um, you know, it's um, almost like acting, you know, stepping into somebody else's roll at their shoes mm. when you also had the diary entries of some other british seamen right to to rely yes. a little bit on for like the language and yes 
Yes, I did. That was hugely helpful. That research was really fun. I loved reading memoirs of seafaring, you know, seafaring memoirs. There are these people who are taking these massive risks, mm. and you could reap huge rewards, but more often than not, you you know, it was such a dangerous job. And um, and I just felt like there was a great deal of honesty in them, even when they were describing, you know, things I couldn't even imagine. Um, I I still felt there was this honesty there, and yeah. and so I I really loved those. Yeah, I mean, that's something worth commenting on in the book. I mean, this is a time in history when most people lived and died within a very, you know, uh, short distance of where they were born. Mm -hmm. And so it was something just in and of itself to have been able to, you know, have have seen another country, you know, or even another city. Right. Yeah, Yeah, that was that was a really fun kind of part of the book for me. And at first I just thought, how am I going to convince a reader that all of these things could have happened to someone that they could that this woodcarver could go from India to France. And and as I read these memoirs, I was like, oh, these these seafaring lives, it, it made so much possible, so much adventure, so much, so so such extraordinary things could happen to a single person in a lifetime. And so that was sort of fun to allow him that freedom to do that. Yeah. We have some uh, listener objects coming in, which I think are, mm-hmm. are interesting. Um, the Rosetta Stone, one listener writes, mm-hmm. I think the Rosetta Stone, which is in the Louvre, is a fascinating object. It was carved to be a simple decree and ended up unlocking language for historians. Also the name of a not-so-great language learning program. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Danny writes in to say, regardless of whether it's real or a hoax, the Shroud of Turin continues to fascinate me. Despite how much science is thrown at it, believers and skeptics alike are unchanged in their convictions about what it is. I'm like, you know, I'm fascinated with like the way that these objects sort of like accrete meaning through time too, right? Because they have these particular features and details. They are a real thing. You can touch. They're made out of wood, but they're also a story, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember reading about Tipu's Tiger when it was first brought to London. It was like it's such a craze and there were lines around the block to come in and look at it. And I just and people would, you know, play God Save the King or Queen, whatever, um, while kind of it, kind of mocking it. But some people like ladies would faint. I mean, it really <laughs> had such a such a strong impact, but but a, div- a range of impacts depending on who was, you know, looking at it. Gosh, so does it still do you know if it still works? I don't think so. I mean, I saw a video of them trying to kind of get it to work, and it did, It does sort of, I think it's very moan. delicate. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah. like a very weak moan and groan. I don't yeah. Know. yeah, that's so interesting. Um, we're talking with Tanya James, the author of the novel Loot. It's a work of historical fiction set in the late 18th century in England, France, and southern India. Follows the adventures of a boss, a teenage craftsman who James imagines could have, might have created the incredible tiger automaton that you can find at London's V&A Museum. If you want to look up this thing so you can hear, see this uh, tiger that we're talking about, you can just search Tipu's Tiger. Uh, and is the best way to search that T-I-P-U? Or yeah, T-I- I think okay. so. Or T-I-P-P-O-O. T-I-P-P-O-O. You can see it. I think you'll be... Um, pretty amazed to buy it and it's a it really provides a a perspective on history that i have uh never gotten myself um we would love to hear about an object from history that's always fascinated you and what drew you to it like what is it about that object that has kind of captured your imagination you can give us a call the number is 866-733-6786 
We're also going to talk about apprenticeship in the next uh, segment of the show. And so, you know, have you ever apprenticed with someone? And what was that experience like? The number is 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, threads. We're KQED Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more with Tanya James. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. We're talking with Tanya James, the author of the novel Loot. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. We are um, going to get some more comments in in a sec, but I do want to ask you about this comment that comes up in the book. Um, one of your characters says it, and you eventually attribute it, and the, the phrase is, we are here because you were there. Can you talk to me about that? Um, that phrase and sort of where it comes from and what it means for you. That phrase was, I came across it, I've heard it many times, but I didn't know until I looked it up, It was it, it's attributed to a Sri Lankan writer-activist named S. Ambalavner, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, and I just loved it as it, as it kind of, um, as a sort of way of looking back at the novel and a way of looking at colonialism, that colonialism is a story that is still unfolding, mm. that the effects of colonialism are, um, you know, are, you know, the, 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 our migrations and the way we have moved across the world um, are a result of colonialism. That story, that ongoingness, um, I, just, I just love the idea of that um, as a way of thinking about the, the journeys of these characters and our ongoing journeys and, in, in, you know, I mean, my own and and uh, my parents and so many, so many people. Yeah. I am curious about your own journey. I mean, you grew up in Louisville, right? I did. Yeah. Uh, an Indian-American, Louisville, you know, growing up in the 80s and 90s. Uh, what was that like? I mean, I think Louisville, at that time, there weren't that many Indians. And so um, there was just a, but there was a strong kind of community and a diverse community of different religions, different, you know, background states. And so we were all just kind of, you know, everyone knew each other. And there was something kind of delightful about that. And now there's many more Indians. And, you know, there's, that's wonderful, too. Um, I I loved the the thing that I, Louisville really gave me as an artist was exposure to certain teachers who really put me on the path to becoming a writer. I don't know that it would have happened for me the same way mm. if I had lived in somewhere like New York. Like I went to something called the Governor's School for the Arts when I was uh, 16 or 17, and I met two black poet writers, Frank X. Walker and Kelly Ellis, and I still think about them and the way in which they... Mm 
they, you know, gave me just enough of a nudge to, to see possibilities. Mm, that's so, you know, and this book does have this core relationship is really one of like a, apprenticeship, right? There's mm-hmm. the, the older French uh, watchmaker and there's this younger uh, man, Abbas. Did your own sense of your apprenticeship to these, you know, older writers come into play? Or you now, of course, teach younger writers at the MFA program uh, at George Mason. Like, talk to me a little bit about your ways of thinking about apprenticeship from sort of both sides. Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely remember this feeling of awe for my mentors and just such respect and regard. But also there's a kind of underside to that, that there's a moment where Abbas says, I want what you have. He's thinking about his mentor and he just wants that want is not entirely pure for him. He at one point saves his mentor's life. And in part, you know, there's something you know, he, he saves him because he's doing a good thing and he cares about him. But there's also this underbelly to it that he needs his mentor. He needs to further his education. And so um, that sort of hunger is um, has kind of uh, positive and negative light to me. And I, I feel like I, to me, like mentorship, when I think about mentorship now, I think as a younger writer, I thought a mentor is somebody who's going to introduce you to the right agent or take you to the parties and get you the fellowship. And I still encounter students who think that that's what a mentor is. I actually think a mentor is offers you just the smallest moments of confidence and just, just the belief that, that I'm not worried about you. Like I remember a mentor saying that to me, I'm not worried about you. And for some reason that that was kind of a pivotal thing for me to just just so much about being a young artist is being afraid um, and and being insecure about the lack of control you have over your, you know, over your journey. And just those moments where someone is, is telling you to not be afraid is it can be pivotal and it can sustain you. Mm. How do you take that into your own teaching, aside from just telling your students, do not be afraid, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I try... I, you know, do not be afraid of something I have to tell myself all the time. I, I do think it, it, one refrain that comes up a lot is learning to be comfortable with or accept uncertainty. And I think it is easier said than done. And I'm not an expert at that. But I think if there's one thing that you get better at with time is just learning to accept the lack of control and the, the the insecurity as part of the process. And so the one thing you can control is just the what you're doing on the page and whether you show up and whether you just kind of keep going at it. And I I think that's I think part of being a mentor to me is is trying to show that I'm walking the same journey alongside you. That I'm going through what you're going through, so I share, you know, a good bit of my own uncertainty and my own kind of like missteps, and as I'm going through them. Mm, that's beautiful. Let's bring in um, Nino in San Francisco. Welcome, Nino. Hi. Hello. Uh, yeah, the the one uh, device that's always uh, made me uh, wonder about the capabilities of our forefathers is the Anticatera mechanism that mm. was. Uh, uh, pulled out of the ocean near Anticatera, I think it is somewhere in the Mediterranean, in 1901. And um, this is kind of like a, a machine uh, with gears, uh, kind of like a sextant. Uh, people believe that it was uh, used for 
uh, you know, maritime or, you know, uh, navigation, but then others have uh, speculated it's, uh, it's possibly uh, astrological or mm-hmm. astronomic uh, device. And, and the thing that really uh, captures my, my imagination is if it wasn't for the fact that it was uh, recovered in 1901, we would have never known that, that right. there was this capability of uh, mechanism and, and, and timing uh, and construction and, uh, and, and you know, skills uh, that, that dates uh, thousands of years back. And it makes me wonder the kind of things that we haven't found yet that existed and we don't know um, that, you know, yeah. that, they, that they exist. Uh, wow. So that's, yeah. that's really... You know, what a good point. Just like, I, I totally agree when you, the, some of those objects, particularly those that have that, you know, really precise mechanism may have been used as an analog computing device, these things. You just think, God, the vastness of history, the immensity of human creativity over time. And we only know what some tiny, you know, moat of all of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for that. You know, have you ever looked at that one time? Have you ever gotten fascinated by it? No, I I really want to look that one up, but it has me thinking. I know that that automatons were made in ancient Greece, but also um, I had come across them in. Uh, they were uh, popular in Iraq, Syria, Turkey, and like as early as the twelve hundreds. So I, that was interesting to me that I I thought they were European, uh, you know, like they were a European thing of the seventeen hundreds, but they go so far back, and I agree, so fascinating, so many things we don't know. Um, another listener writes in on this uh, on this topic. The automaton in this book reminded me of the book The Invention of Hugo Cabret, which also mm-hmm. features a real-life automaton made by a Swiss, Swiss watchmaker. What is it about watchmaking that leads to making robots? I understand that there's a need for precision, but perhaps also there's an idea that watchmakers animate time. Mm. I, I don't know. I mean, that's that's really fascinating. I. I know that in my research that that engineers also mechanical engineers were also there's something romantic to me about clock making though I think I probably made that decision just because the idea of clocks was so beautiful and and that also one thing I discovered was that clocks you know that what the clocks that we know of were really only um were brought to India um in by the British as a way of kind of creating a sort of um you know, making people more, more efficient, making right. work like more a regulatory yes. device. Yeah, and I thought that was really interesting as a sort of not a symbol, but something. It was in the back of my mind, and I just thought about how the first time Dulez, this French clockmaker, shows Abbas this this watch, that it's something kind of dramatic to Abbas. He's never seen anything so um, efficient, and it's it sort of almost seems kind of magical. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. There's also something, you know, on that animating time. I do think that people have used the mechanisms that we produce. They kind of bounce back on us as our, like, models for what a human is. You know, so humans become, when we can build a steam engine, humans become a steam engine. When we can build a computer, humans become a computing device. You know, when we can build it in this particular moment we're in right now, I feel like people see what AI produced and are sort of like, oh, yeah, we're just sort of a version of an artificial intelligence. And it's, mm. you know, it's kind of this natural thing that people have done throughout throughout time also it might just be the name for that watchmaker i mean horology is one of those <laughs> words that the second you hear it you're sort of like that is mysterious and old <laughs> yes <laughs> you know i must yes. i must know more yeah um let me put we one of our listeners has uh kind of a kind of an intense uh comment which i'd like to give to you uh bupal writes 
Everyone, especially Indians and those of Indian origin, should boycott all British museums that have any looted art pieces from India until they are returned to India. I wonder how you feel about this. Hmm. That's an interesting position. I, I can understand how why someone would feel this way, but I, I, I don't think I agree with that. I mean, having gone to see Tipu's Tiger... Um, I felt such awe for this object that had nothing to do with nations. It didn't even have to do with India. It didn't have to do with England. It, you know, it, 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 I, I, I experience art. Um, I try to experience art without looking at the placard first. I try to just look at the art and gain some kind of emotional response from it. So I'm looking at, you know, the carving of a hollow, and I'm imagining how that, you know, the knife went through the wood. And I, it's much to me, the connection between viewer, me, and art is so much more mysterious and almost mystical that I, I just think that it's a, it's a kind of disservice to the artist to kind of think of it in terms of um, the nations from which these things were made solely in that frame. I think it's important to think about it in that frame to some extent, but but we lose so much by completely ignoring the the human who is not simply one thing. Do you think that your experience of whatever period of colonialism we're in now is different because you grew up, you know, in the US and not in, you know, Britain or in India? Like do you think that shaped your response to this? I I don't know. I mean, I think probably. I'm sure. I mean, my 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 understanding of migration is so limited by many years of thinking that Indian migration to the U.S. began in the '60s or the '70s, um, which was, you know, most people I knew that that's when they most people's parents immigrated around that time. Though the history of migration is so much longer and more interesting than I really understood. And I think that Indians in, in England probably understand it very differently and have a much more, um, probably a richer understanding of the history of Indian migration just because mm-hmm. they've been there for much longer. But I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm sure, you know, I, if I were from England, I probably would have known of Tipu's Tiger for much longer than I did. And maybe mm-hmm. I wouldn't have been so attracted to it because I would have been, it would not have been so extraordinary to me mm-hmm. to discover it at where I am now. You know, I want to close with the other object that sort of rotates around the tiger in this book. And that's actually the poem by Zebu Nisa. Did I say that mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and there's these two lines that you choose from it. Were an artist to choose me for his model, how could he draw the form of a sigh? And these, these lines kind of come back to Abbas and, and to us in the book um, multiple times. T- talk to me about these lines as a writer, which clearly sort of got into you in a way and ended up animating um, so much of this book. So as you said, the lines, Zebu Nisa was actually a real person. She was the daughter of the Mughal emperor, Aurangzeb, and she um, she was a patron of the arts and a poet, and she one book is attributed to her, the Book of the Hidden One, and that was her pen name, the Hidden One. And I... I thought about including those lines as an epigraph at the beginning of the novel, but I just thought 
you know, we we were speaking earlier about those small moments that kind of make you the artist or set you on that path. And I just think this is another kind of small moment where the first time you read something or see something that makes you think, I want to do that. I want to, I want to mm. create that feeling in someone else. And that, those sort of moments are pivotal. They're mysterious too, because I don't think he ever understands why that verse has such a hold on him. All mm. he knows is that he wants to make something that lasts as much as this does for him. And I think, you know, part of his ambition is to be great, but part of his ambition is also just to um, have, make something that's, that has impact on someone else and, and that will give him, that will survive him in some way. I'm curious about how you encountered that poem and what role it's had for you. I mean, I think it was, when I came across it, I was really, I just thought it was breathtaking and sad, but also really um, hopeful in the sense that, you know, this is someone who is in confinement um, and she lived a tragic life, um, but she somehow, she was just so brilliant. And I, I just thought, I... I want to have some way for these voices, particularly a woman's voice, to be woven into the novel as a way of the novel feeling like it's ongoing, that it doesn't end with the borders of what happens to Abbas and what happens to Jean and these characters, but that it's in conversation with a history that we're still a part of. Mm. You know, and your approach to gender and sexuality here was a little lighter than I actually expected, like the dangers of being a woman or gay mm. or sleeping with someone that you shouldn't be <laughs> lurk and are kind of glimpsed. But people kind of get away with it. Yeah. And I they do what they want to do. Was that like sort of an intentional decision that, that you know, you weren't going to bring moral uh, punishment onto characters doing things that might have been outside the mores of the time? Yeah, I kind of, I, well, I don't know. I mean, I'm speculating here. I'm not an expert. But I wonder if sometimes this sort of conservatism that is imposed on historical figures is actually true. I, you know, I think I I wanted, I, I wanted these characters to live lives that are outside the boundaries of what, what we would expect of them. And sometimes I think, you know, I think of the genre of the picaresque where a character goes on all these adventures. And at first I thought, how am I, you know, what kind of woodcarver would have all these adventures? And I, <laughs> when I think about it as I'm not really trying to write, you know, straightforward, you know, historical fiction that, you know, is likely to have happened. I'm trying to get you to believe in a world and sort of almost like an alternate historical world. Like it's sort of speculative in a way where the rules aren't necessarily the rules that we think of. Um, so I, I, I feel like the social rules, they are sort of bending the social rules a bit, but I, I, I'm hoping that I've convinced the reader that these are characters who are getting away with it somehow. <laughs> uh, it's just sort of more fun for me. Yeah, 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 yeah. me too. Um, Jeff writes in to say, I like discovering relics of the past that persist into the present day, like the fire hydrants spread through San Francisco that are topped with the apparently decorative balls. Those balls, in fact, were used to tie off the horses of the horse-drawn fire engines. Mm -hmm. Or the fact that the railroad crossing signs are so high on the crossing equipment because they were originally designed for rides on horseback or in horse-drawn carriages. I love that. We've been talking with Tanya James about her new book, Loot. It's gotten rave reviews, work of historical fiction that follows the adventures of a boss, a teenage woodworker. Pick it up at your local independent bookstore. Thank you, Tanya, for this thoughtful, incredible hour. Thank you so much, Alexis. It's been fun. And for listeners also who are hoping to hear our show about Rossmore, don't worry. 
That's coming up tomorrow at 9 o'clock. Tune in for that. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.